Hey, this is Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, Johnny Cash, live at Folsom Prison. Micaiah, what do our listeners need to know right up front about Johnny Cash's live album, recorded in a prison that he had already written a song about. Yeah, a written song about not even like earlier that year or the year prior, more than 10 years ago had been written, recorded, and released. Yeah, so it's it, it would be like, you know, it would be very strange if someone now released a live album based on something they did like 10 or 11 years ago. You're like, well, is that relevant? Uh, so it's kind of, I mean, it's easier now because for us, like, you know, what's the difference between like 1957 and 1960 or whatever all sounds old, you know, to certain people, but we know there's a big difference between 1957, like that, like Eisenhower era and 1968, which is a like tumultuous year for the United States, you know? Um, so it's, you know, released in the context of a year that's famously one of, kind of the most tragic and challenging and formative for the people growing up at that time. Um, you know, uh, a lot of young people's political views get shaped by, in 1968 who are going to become, you know, more aggressively. You know, the the hippie dream is dead, you know, by, by 1968. So something else is coming right around the corner. So there is a cultural shift here and a, a country album in a prison seems like it's a pretty good time to release something like that um and this is i mean this is someone who's like what like 20 albums deep in his career at this point you know like he has so many records to his name um coming from you know the early era where an lp was just a place to you know put a bunch of singles on um but this is kind of one of the great johnny cash albums because it works as one great piece you know it's not like earlier records where they're just a collection of old folk songs that Johnny Cash is covering. And it's not just like, Oh, there's a bunch of singles on here. You know, they were, they were released a few years ago, but now you have them all in one place. Like we've talked about with Chuck Berry and it's, or just like, it's not just like, Oh, here, you know, Cash sings Williams, you know, it's not like a bunch of covers or something, you know, like there is something unique and singular about this album that catches cash still at a young point in his career because i mean the other kind of point that we love him the most a lot of us kind of three points you know the the early sun years of course Mm -hmm. this point where he does this and then he does you know he shows up on nashville skyline with dylan and does dan quentin like the year after or so and then that third wave much later, not 10 years later, like the previous two uh, into the nineties when he comes back with Rick, uh, Rick Rubin in the American recordings, recordings, um, you know, a few albums there in a, in a large box set of things that didn't make it onto those records that, so, I mean, he had another five records ready to go, you know? So uh, he's very active in the last few years, you know, last decade or so of his life. Um, but this one seems to really capture him as the way that we typically think of Cash. Um, and I think that's why it's always kind of 
stood out on the top of all of the great list of great albums, live albums, country albums. This one's always there. The the Rolling Stone 500, the 2020 list, had it at 164. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not too bad for a country album, an old guy like Cash, truthfully, because, you know, in that 2020 album, it's pretty unfavorable. Uh, Older acts fell out of favor a lot in the RS 500. Especially country acts did. Especially country, even though they made room for some new country acts on there. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, On the Rolling Stones 100 Greatest Country Albums, number 11, just outside the top 10. Uh, I don't think any Cash album made the top 10, though. Pitchfork's 1960s list, 58, right? So if if you're looking at live albums, albums of the 60s, country albums, greatest albums of all time, like this one's going to show up. Like Mm -hmm. this one has just stuck with people now for over... 50 years I, to that point. I think there's a lot that's going for it. And, and I think that like so many artists that we have ended up talking about. And one of the things that I think we have seen in three seasons of doing this podcast and nominating and nominating albums is it's really hard to nominate albums from the 1950s because the great albums of the 1950s are all almost exclusively jazz records or cruder records no one else is really doing lps certainly not rock music isn't really doing lps and even country music isn't doing really lps at this point point. and so thinking about a country artist who gets their start in the 50s and now gets this kind of second kind of rebirth of their career, this kind of second wave of their career that is smack dab in the middle of the LP era. I think that it's interesting that when we think about what is the kind of quintessential cash album, it's actually live at Folsom prison. And then I would put live at San Quentin just after that at number two for me, because it's really these two live prison albums that give you kind of the most coherent tied together very kind of album specific picture of who Johnny Cash is as an artist, even though he's, he's a person who has released dozens of albums over the course of his career. What we get on live at Folsom prison is such a unique picture. So it's a great country album. It's a great live album. It's a great album from the sixties. It's a great album for a really strange year and dark year in American history. It's one of the great, you know, it's one of the great albums of all time. It's really, it's, it's a great rock album as well, even though it is country music that he's playing. And so there are so many things going for this album. It's strange as I think about it, because I have nominated Moan in the Blues by Hank Williams. I have nominated um, two different Dolly Parton albums Outside of you and I doing Lucinda Williams together, Car Wheels in a Gravel Road, and now here we have Johnny Cash, we're in a third season, and this is only the second country album we've done. And so unless a lot of things change next season, this may be one of two or one of at most maybe three or four total country albums we're going to do on our list. And it's a pretty rocking album. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the issue is just that we just have different tastes in country music. I think that's the only reason why. Because, I mean, that's just our method. You know, mm-hmm. just, we have to intersect, and that's how it gets on our list. You know, I, we've never had a conversation really about 
Grievous Angel by Graham Parsons. So I don't know if you're ever going to nominate it or Sweetheart of the Rodeo by the birds or, you know, or I, I don't really know your interest level in prime because we haven't really talked about them very much. Yeah. Um, but those, that's more my interest uh, when it comes to country music, but you're right. I mean, it looks like country music will, you know, make up less than five or less percent uh, of our list. And maybe that's all right. I don't know. I mean, country listeners, I think uh, won't like it, but I, I think you and I, growing up when we did 1980, 1990, when we were born, respectively, um, you know, it's for our own interests, rock music, and just in the times in which we grew up, you know, it was all about hip hop music. Yeah, that was dominating popular culture. So I feel like those are the kind of the two places that are really going to really show what our own interests are. Um, and take up kind of the majority of the, it's even like within rock, you know, maybe more of the alternative rock music more than, you know, your ACDC and like Aeros, you know, that classic rock kind of stuff, you know? So, you know, the, the more we fit out this list, the more our preferences are really going to show up at the same time, you know, some of our preferences are not showing up as much because now we're not doing death cab. Now we're finally doing someone who's a giant, like Johnny Cash, who yeah. a lot of people be like, this is a season one artist. But it is interesting to hear you say that, because I, I think you're right that country will end up being 5% or less of our total list. Mm-hmm. And so I'm glad that we invited a guest to talk about this album, who really is kind of an encyclopedia of country music. And so tell us a little bit about our guest today. Well, David Cantwell, he writes for The New Yorker and Rolling Stone. He's recently contributed to the Rolling Stone 100 Greatest Albums for country music. And uh, I think the 100 best or 50 best like country singers list. So this man writes about country music and list. He has a book on like the 500 best country singles. This is the guy who we want on our podcast, right? We're talking about lists. We're talking about country music. Who better than to have on? than David Cantwell today. I love it. Well, hey, let's take a quick break. Let's hear from our sponsor, Mirror Coffee Roasters, and then we'll be back with our guest, David Cantwell. I want to take a second and tell you a little bit about Mirror Coffee Roasters. Mirror Coffee Roasters are pursuing excellence from coffee, farm to cup. They're here to elevate your home coffee experience and help you to reflect what's good. Mirror Coffee Roasters are based in Bellingham, Washington, but they are bringing you the finest coffees from all around the world with sustainability as their first priority. Just three years old, Mirror Coffee Roasters are getting set to launch an entire new lineup of coffees. So check them out at mirrorcoffeeroasters.com. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train a coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on 
But that train keeps a rolling on down the San Antonio. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and He has written for The New Yorker. He has written for Rolling Stone. And his latest book, The Running Kind, Listening to Merle Haggard, is out and available now wherever books are sold. But of course, we encourage you to pick that up at your local independent book retailer. He is Mr. David Cantwell. David, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for reaching out and letting me talk about Johnny Cash with you. Well, we're here to talk about Johnny Cash and in in particular, Johnny Cash's live album, Live at Folsom Prison. But let's start here. When did you become a fan of Johnny Cash? And over the years, what has his music meant to you? Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's a nice coincidence that uh, when I first became aware of Johnny Cash is right about the moment that Folsom Prison uh, the, the live album has put him back into the spotlight. And, and in fact, uh, I don't know if people remember, you know, Johnny Cash had a lot of earlier hits and even had some early pop crossover stuff in, uh, in his son years. And then in his early years on Columbia in the middle to mid fifties to the early sixties, but he'd been kind of out of sorts in terms of being a big chart presence. And he definitely wasn't crossing over to a pop audience uh, until Folsom prison comes along. Uh, and the lives, a new version of uh, Folsom Prison Blues actually becomes a number one country hit and also um, uh, a minor pop hit. And that sets him up for the big moment next, the following year, when uh, from the Live at San Quentin album, he has Boy Named Sue, which is number one pop and country, right? And so that particular moment when Cash has a new pop cachet, um, lets him then step in and be not just all over the radio. And he, and that was followed up with quite a few other pop crossover country hits. They were always almost with the exception of William MC. They were always bigger on country than they were on the pop charts, but they, but he had a number of them for the next several years. And those coincided not at all coincidentally with his television show. And that's really where I began to, Oh, this is the guy that we hear on the radio. Oh, um, the Johnny Cash show, which I guess ran from 69 to 71, maybe something like that. Um, and so when that's happened, I'm like 10, 12 years old. And uh, it's really, um, really just made an, an impression on me because Cash was everywhere. He, we watched his show in our house every week. It was one of the shows we didn't miss. He was on the pop stations that my mother liked to listen to. Uh, and he was on the country station that my dad liked to listen to. <clears throat> but he was also like, uh, as the as the years began to pass right there in the early 70s, he was like in a movie. I, I always forget the name of it. He was in a movie, I think, with Kirk Douglas. And I never saw the movie, but it was advertised all the time. And I remember, oh, wow, he's like a movie star. And, uh, and then he was on, I don't know how much 
um, I mean, he, I'm just trying to emphasize that he was everywhere yeah. in my, in my world. So like um, we, my, my father, it, coincidentally at that point in his life had become a born again Christian. And so we also watched every time Billy Graham had a, tel- a televised crusade, we would watch it. And cash was a regular presence on those. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, a couple of years later, he's on Columbo playing at a, a uh, an evangelist who, who murders his wife. And um, not too long after that, he was on uh, an episode of another show. We always watch a little house on the prairie. He played that time. He played a fake evangelist, not a murdering one, but a fake one who went in and tried to um, steal all the money from uh, Walnut Grove. Uh, and th- seriously, Cash has made a lot of movies, and you know they're okay. <laughs> yeah. But 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 the speech he gives at the end of that episode of Little House on the Prairie, when he confesses to the whole town. Um, there at the pulpit that he's a fraud and he asks for their forgiveness is really good. (laughs) He's really like, wow. The fact that when I first encountered him, he wasn't just on records or on the radio, but he was on TV all the time really helped impress upon me that he was a performer and entertainer, right? And that he had a persona and he played roles and it and the, all of that together sort of really pushed down this whole idea of Johnny Cash is authentic real mm. it was much more that Johnny Cash is an is an actor um he he you know he his role changes from time to time and he's it's never like real life he didn't really shoot a man <laughs> to watch him die he didn't really much later on shoot uh Delia in the side. Uh, these are characters he's playing. He even dressed. I mean, another thing that I like that emphasized the the persona quality of it, the non authentic part of it. I mean, he was he had a catchphrase. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. At the beginning of the album that we're going to talk about, but also at the beginning of his show every week, mm-hmm. he, he the way he dressed in those black frocks with the frilly white shirt. I mean, it was like he was wearing a costume. That's how it struck me. Um. So anyway, that's where I came in. And so then when I began to write about um, music and country music in particular, um, much later in the, in the early 90s in the alternative country moment, I don't know what you know, that that happened to coincide with the release of another Johnny Cash comeback moment, his American recordings with mm-hmm. Rick Rubin. And so I always had a very different take on those records than, than people who were coming to him kind of in that moment, that was like the first thing that they really loved about Johnny Cash. I'd been loving him for a long time. And so I had a, you know, a different, a different take. It's a fantastic record, but a different take on it, I think, than a lot of other people. You know, the, the reason I felt differently about that is because, no, I, I think you need to understand that Cash is, is more closely aligned throughout his career with the mainstream stuff. That's where he's always been reaching pop. He's always had that kind of, he, he's always presented himself as playing a role, as being not real, not authentic, but obviously larger than life, exaggerated life, <laughs> um, with lessons to learn about life from these like, almost like folk tales uh, is, is much closer. It's not, yeah, that, that's, that's a good way to think about it from where I'm coming from is that it's, He's, he's, he's like it's like folklore it's closer to what cash is sharing than 
uh, real authenticity or anything like that. Oh, come all you young fellers, so young and so fine. Seek not your fortune in the dark dreary mine. It'll form as a habit and seep in your soul till the stream of your blood runs as black as the coal. Where it's dark as a dungeon, damp as the dew. Danger is double, pleasures are few Where the rain never falls, the sun never shines It's dark as a dungeon way down in the mine Whether it is a uh, posthumous glorification or just so many people coming to Johnny Cash's music now, you know, 50 to 70 years after it first is released, that it's easy, I think, to believe the mythic person, mm-hmm. to, to believe the man in black. And so but the things you're talking about is is really being this kind of pop performer Im- embodying this character I think gets lost on a lot of newer audiences to Johnny Cash's music. And he just becomes the mythic man in black. Right. Instead right. of the character that's being played. Or the many characters. Mm-hmm. They, the, uh, cause, cause the myth the, uh, that um, he is being accepted as in the way you're talking about it, even that is a shrunken version of cash. Yeah. And uh, one of the things uh, that I like about San Quentin or, um, well, actually, the San Quentin album, too, but the Folsom Prison album is that, um, you know, it has serious stuff, but it also it ends with a gospel song, which is a part of cash that tends to get overlooked mm-hmm. <laughs> by the people who want the, the myth. And the part of the myth they want is like he's an outlaw. He's a badass. He's a rebel. And they forget like the goofy novelty songs like egg sucking dog <laughs> and uh, you flush my heart down your toilet or whatever it's phrased. Right. <laughs> so that that goofball side of cash, which was really prominent. He's a nut mm-hmm. uh, as as one of his albums. It's called Everybody Loves a Nut. Um, and he's one of them. Uh, and so these other parts of cash tend to get um minimized or forgotten altogether if you go down to like lower broad in nashville and go in and out of all those gift shops you know you're going to see johnny cash flipping off the cameraman johnny cash the the uh you know looking like he's bergman's uh character death (laughs) and not the goofball or the bible scholar Mm -hmm. you know I'll, I'll share this real quick. The um, So in that moment that I'm talking about back in the alternative country time, one of the, where these uh, debates played out for me and were really an important part of my education, were on a, um, a mailing list, and remember those? <laughs> uh, an email mailing list called Postcard 2. Um, and uh, there were a lot of people on there who like Carl Wilson, friend of the pod. Mm-hmm. He was, he's on, he was on there. And of course has gone on to be a successful critic and author, uh, Barry Mazur, uh, who wrote the definitive book on the singing breakman, Jimmy Rogers, and who is currently working on a big biography on the Everly brothers. He was on there. 
um, my co-author, Bill Friscus Warren, for a book we, he and I wrote in 2003 called Heartaches by the Number, Country Music's 500 Greatest Singles. Mm-hmm. He was on that list, but he might be known to some of your listeners as the person who does all the country music obits for the New York Times. Yeah. So there's a lot of talent on there and lots of people who are like thinking about country music seriously in that moment. But the one who made the biggest impression on me was a woman um, named Cheryl Klein. And she used to write for uh, Bitch Magazine and stuff. But she really focused on working class, um, blue collar, uh, working class issues. And she uh, and she was a great critic. And she wrote this piece that is not well known enough as they should be, but it was called 20 Easy Rules for Writing About Country Music, The Way the Pros Do It. And so it was just a parody of the way rock writers tended to write about country. <laughs> and it hit me so hard because it was just like, this is like exactly true. And this is what I've been wrestling with. Uh, what she's what she's nailing is what is now called rockism or, or writers who are rockist. We didn't use those terms, <laughs> but that's what this is like the first time looking back. I go, oh, I see that she was ahead of the curve on this. And I just was going to read um, uh, two of those rules. Uh, out of the 20. So rule number four, according to Cheryl Klein, was uh, when you write about country music, the way the rock pros do it is to laud country artists who display character character traits most cherished in rock and whose lyrical concerns hew closest to a rock sensibility. Hmm. And rule number five was play up these traits in country artists you want to make over as rock icons. Cash is like first in this list, right? Absolutely. Uh, while glossing over any traits they might exhibit that are more prized by country. For example, she says, play up Johnny Cash as an outlaw, play down Johnny Cash as a Bible scholar. So I, this this was like so on point to me. Um, and it's, it's always, it stuck with me and I owe her a lot. And so I just wanted to get that on some sort of, some sort of record. It's, it's, <laughs> the client it's influenced me there. It's funny hearing you say that because for me, my, I think I had heard this album as a child live at Folsom prison and live at San Quentin, those two albums that come out in, in about two years apart. Those, those two live albums are, are really my kind of introduction to Johnny Cash as a kid. Yeah. But as an adult, the box set collection, love God murder, which basically mm-hmm. is kind of a, best of Johnny Cash love songs, a best of Johnny Cash gospel songs and a best of Johnny Cash murder songs. And each of the three CDs has basically a kind of a a writer introducing you to that material. So for the love album, it's June Carter cash writing for the murder album. It's Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. I remember that. And then for the gospel one, it's Bono. And I, I pulled this because I love what Bono says, thinking about that gospel side, that that very religious, devoutly religious side of Johnny Cash. This is what Bono wrote in that introduction. He says, gospel music has a joy that in most hands comes off as sentimental, a sweetness so easily saccharine. Why is it that in these songs, the angels feel like they're round the corner from devils? We feel like he has made a choice to pitch his tent at the gates of hell. Johnny Cash doesn't sing to the damned. He sings with the damned. And sometimes you might feel he prefers their company. 
that's really excellent. That's like so, but it also, I, I would just have to note, it like plays into the idea, even when he's doing gospel, it's a, re- a rebellious gospel, right? Absolutely. But that, but that's what I'm saying. So even for Bono, like Bono yeah. who loves Johnny Cash has such that, like he's embraced the, the, the rock picture of Johnny Cash, yes. even as he's thinking about his most spiritual music. Yes, that's very smart of you. I, I remember when that collection, those Love God Murder things came out and I was like, how did murder get on this list? <laughs> it's like, like how many, I mean, I, I have not returned to that to see, but you know, lots of love songs, mm-hmm. lots of God songs, but you know, there's a handful of murder songs. Like you have to kind of stretch the murder, I would think to, yeah, there's a few, there's a few on at Folsom prison. Yeah. So, so, um, the ones that stand out to me, you know, of course it is Folsom prison blues, Delia, long black veil, you know, so, some of those, some of those songs. Well, I suppose, uh, cocaine blues, uh, yeah. uh, could be on there and green, green grass of home on the, on the live album, uh, probably didn't make the cut. Is that, I don't, Personally, I don't think it's actually a very good version of yeah. that great song, but uh, there's another example. Well, actually, we, I guess you could say the state is about to murder the prisoner, but we don't we don't really know why he's in prison. So yeah. not, not exactly murder. At my door, the leaves are falling. A cold, wild wind will come. Sweethearts walk by together And I still miss someone I go out on a party And look for a little fun But I find a darkened corner Cause I still miss someone I never got over those blue eyes I see them everywhere I miss those arms that held me When all the love was there I wonder if she's sorry For leaving what we'd begun There's someone for me somewhere And I still miss someone You've already alluded to this a little bit that Johnny Cash really, who, who went through kind of three really big kind of seasons of his career and two kind of big comebacks and one of them really was this album was was live at Folsom prison so why is it that Johnny Cash wanted to record at a prison and why if he was going to record at a prison why was it so important that Folsom prison was the home there's a uh, country music journalist Michael Streisgath who uh, has written a book about the fo- the making of the Folsom prison album and one of the things he says is that you know um well first of all Streisgast reports that Cash had wanted to make a prison album for many years and Columbia had kept turning him down. 
Frank Jones, who was who had been one of his co-producers with Don Law, they had kept turning him down. And in part, it was because he had already been planned to do a live album centered around Jimmy Rogers and some other old train songs at Carnegie Hall. And he showed up so messed up uh, that his and his voice was shot that it, you know, it was just not anything they could ever use. And so they were leery of like, you know, doing the whole live recording process again. Um, and so, uh, when he got this, when he got Bob Johnston as his producer, uh, took over the Nashville Columbia, uh, he supposedly, you know, marched into his office first thing and says, I want to do a prison album. And Johnston was like, you got it. And immediately picks up the phone in the story and calls, uh, San Quentin and calls Folsom prison to see if they could do anything. And Folsom was the one that returned his call first. Okay. Um, and I think Streis got, you know, he's a, he's a, he's an excellent journalist. So I, I take his word that at least that this was what uh, Bob Johnston told him <laughs> the story that Johnston told him the, but, but cash had been doing uh, prison shows for uh, a long, long time. Uh, but the first one he did ever in his life was um, I think, a, a, Oh my goodness. I can't find it. Um, a Texas prison show in 1957. Oh, wow. But I can't find the actual prison, which seems like it was Huntsville State Prison mm -hmm. in Texas in 1957. And then he uh, had begun to uh, do other shows, most notably at San Quentin. Uh, everyone, many people at least, have heard the story that uh, one of the inmates at the 1959 New Year's Day show at San Quentin was Merle Haggard. Um, and so, and he had, he had been at, in fact, uh, Haggard apparently told Cash and Cash told uh, the journalist Robert Hilburn that um, he had seen him at least twice at San Quentin. So he had a long history of that, right, of doing these kinds of prison shows way, way, and, and his desire to do it. As to the, the, the actual question you asked, though, was why did he want to do it? And I think that, you know, I think he sensed the electricity in the room when he did these shows would certainly be a logical explanation. And I do think that he's tended to just sort of um, naturally align himself with underdogs and the, 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 the downtrodden and people who had no voices themselves. No, I, 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 I wholly agree. And, and I, I wonder as well, how much of, performing at prisons, you, you do get the electricity of the live performance. There, there is, I mean, that, that is a, that's a loud audience. That's an audience that, that you know, especially there's certain songs that they're going to feel more deeply respond to um, in, in bigger ways. And, and again, like I said, the electricity of just the moment, I'm just wondering what it's like for him, you know, 10 AM in the morning, Folsom, yeah. Folsom Penitentiary, and and here he is playing Folsom pretty Folsom Prison Blues. Two inmates at the prison where he is, you know, that he is singing this song about. Is this trying to grab a moment and say, "Hey, we like let's let's lean into this kind of man in black outlaw country thing." Is it, is it just going, Hey, he's got this song from 1955. Let's, you know, let's, let's put him in that place. Let him do the song. I, I just wonder how many 
of of those considerations is it is it just a is it just a promotional and marketing decision or is is this really is there something deeper going on here for Johnny Cash playing in this prison? Well, I think you can't separate those two when it comes to Johnny Cash. And so, so like this this idea of authenticity versus artifice uh, that we've been talking about. I mean, it's not that they're separate things that they intersect, right? I'm not, we're not trying to, I wouldn't want to suggest that, you know, the Johnny Cash that we see on the stage has nothing to do with the actual Johnny Cash. I mean, but I do want to, but I do think it is a construction and a persona he can adopt. And um, one of the things I, I mean, so, so, so if we keep in mind that he had already had years of recording at many prisons, that he had kind of a prison shtick that he had already sort of perfected. Like, I think the the thing, you know, like insisting upon bringing me a, can I get a drink of water? And then and then getting the, the prisoners on his side because the, the water is not coming quickly enough. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I am, that's rehearsed. I'm, yeah. It's rehearsed in the sense that he's done that at other prisons and he understands what he can do. Um, you know, to, to get the prisoners on his side. One of the things that's weird to me, I wonder what you guys think about this is, uh, is you would think that if you were going to go into a prison, you might do a prison song or two, but you might also do some other songs. <laughs> and it's so heavy on the prison songs. And, and, I, and at this point, like lots of people since have done prison albums, um, following Cash's lead, and they're all full of prison songs. And you always think, like the prisoners themselves might be thinking, ah, they're going to play a bunch of prison songs. (laughs) And it's like the guys, the artist will stand up and say, um, now you're in prison. You may have forgotten, though. So I'm going to remind (laughs) you of it in heartbreaking ways (laughs) for the next, about how you have no freedom whatsoever for the next 40 minutes. It's an odd thing. Early one morning while making the rounds I took a shot of cocaine and I shot my woman down I went right home and I went to bed I stuck at 11.44 beneath my head Got up next morning and I grabbed that gun Took a shot of cocaine and away I run Made a good run but I run too slow they overtook me down in Juarez, Mexico Laid in the hot joints, taking the pills And walked the sheriff from Jericho Hill He said, Willie Lee, your name is not Jack Brown Here's the dirty hack that shot your woman down said, Yes, so oh, yes, my name is Willie Lee If you've got a warrant just to read it to me Shut her down because she made me slow. I thought I was her daddy, but she had five more. I had some thoughts too about, I mean, not necessarily why this album, but like when in terms of timing, if it's something he had been wanting to do, there just is a a cultural shift in 68. Um, You know, it's the Vietnam era um, and Manson family's right around the corner. MLK is assassinated. RFK is assassinated. Uh, the movies are becoming grittier. Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living right. Dead. You know, like there's, there's just is a general cultural shift to where you want this guy who was famous in the 50s to play a, a few songs in a prison suddenly doesn't seem so 
crazy anymore. It seems to be befitting of, you know, 1968 in particular, you know, so it doesn't seem like it's that wild a thing, especially if you have Bob Johnston. Like, okay, so put him in there with Dylan's producer from a couple of years ago who's been doing Simon, Gar- you know, who's been with all the young guys doing the cool folk rock thing. Uh, you know, I guess it just kind of, you know, all fits together pretty nicely, pretty quickly at that time. So I think it's yeah. really a timing thing for him too, you know, and, and country rock is becoming a thing. John Wesley Harding by Dylan yes. comes out the year before you got the flying burrito brothers. Right. Graham Parsons is with the birds in 1968 doing sweetheart of the rodeo. Right. So now there, there is a new country audience and it is coming from rock and roll. Yes. And so at Folsom prisons, a pretty rock and roll move to do. So I think it is good timing. And I think that also plays into the marketing like that now's the time for him to kind of go after the, these young folks but he had been you know um you know he, he'd been covering dylan already uh for yes know, years. so i i just think that it, it just was really good timing yeah or he'd been courting the college audience you know since way back in the in the folk revival when when flattened scrugs and other people are like that are doing college campuses you know he's he's out there trying to do that same kind of thing he records that whole long series of um of like folk themed albums in in the first half of the 1960s to 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 cash in to coin a phrase on the folk revival that's 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 really big um if people don't know those albums i don't know how well known they are songs of our soil ride this train blood sweat and tears bitter tears that's the uh, native american themed album that includes his version of peter lafarge's the ballad of ira hayes which was a big hit Uh, but most of these records didn't produce hits and so he's been courting that audience for some time and you're also right about the shift in the country rock that's happening specifically in that moment. One of the things that, um, as I was looking over this, that sort of struck me is that Cash had had many, as I'd said, had had some pop crossovers before and he's gonna have some later. But this, I think, is the only time when the the, the single uh, Folsom Prison Blues, the live version from 68, it charts pop first, mm. then goes country. And um, and I think that's because a lot of it was that not just because pop radio was so tuned into this moment, but also because the beginnings of FM radio and underground radio, this is the kind of record that they they're going to champion to, uh, for that audience specifically that you're pointing to. Ten years ago, on a cold, dark night. Someone was killed neath the town hall lights There were few at the scene But they all agreed that the slayer who ran Looked a lot like me She walks these hills in a long black veil She visits my grave when the night winds wave Nobody knows, nobody sees Nobody knows but me The judge said, son, what is your alibi If you were somewhere else, then you won't have to die 
I spoke not a word, though it meant my life. I'd been in the arms of my best friend's wife. And <laughs> then I hear somebody applaud. <laughs> now the scaffold is high and eternity's near. She stood in the crowd and shed not a tear. But sometimes at night, when the cold wind moans in a long black veil, she cries over my bones. She walks these hills in a long black veil. She visits my grave. When the night winds wave Nobody knows, nobody sees Nobody knows but me Well, let's talk for a moment, and, and I know, Micaiah, you've got some, you've got some questions in, in this vein, but let's talk a little bit about who else is involved in making this record? Let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, for as much as we think about this being, you know, Johnny cash, and there are a few songs he does solo acoustic in, in, in this concert, this is still a show with June Carter and Carl Perkins and the Tennessee three. And then of course, then you listen to the live at San Quentin, you know, a year and a half later and everyone's on, I mean, that that's, that's a huge band recording essentially. So talk to us a little bit about who all is involved making this record and the role they play in, in some of that music. The, um, if you listen to the deluxe version of At Folsom Prison, you know, the, the, there's all those people are there um, as well. Carl Perkins gets to come out and do a song by himself. St the Statler brothers um, are doing a number behind him. They do a version of This Old House, the Stuart Hamlin song. That's very nice in a Southern gospel way. Um, so all those people are there, but I, we probably should at least, you know, point um, at least wave in the direction of the Tennessee Three. Right. When 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 Cash uh, uh, began his career at Sun, it was the Tennessee Two, and it was that was him and guitarist Luther Perkins and bassist Marshall Grant. Uh, one thing we might say about uh, the um, about Grant is that um, he, when he was back in the Sundays, on the original Folsom Prison and all those records they're doing. Uh, back in that they were having their original hits. That was a stand-up bass. But by the time he gets to San Quentin, that's he that's an electric bass. He's plugged in. It's a it's a it's a bigger sound. Uh the guitar player in that band was Luther Perkins. I think you guys will correct me if I'm wrong. I think the Folsom Prison was recorded in March of 68. And um Perkins Luther Perkins was dead by August. Um and so when they just, as an aside, when they come back, um, I think it's San Quentin, the, uh, most of the guitar is done by Carl Perkins, uh, cause he's still in the band and the, the person who eventually replaces Perkins, I forget if he's on the San Quentin album or not is Bob Wooten and Wooten was the guitar player for cash from basically then on 
like when I saw him for the first time in, I think, 1995, the guitar player was Bob Wooten. And the drummer in that band that I saw then and saw many times afterwards uh, was the same man who became the third member of the Tennessee Three, um, W.S. Fluke Holland. Um, Holland had been a, hanging around Sun Studios a lot. I think he's the drummer on Carl Perkins's Blue Suede Shoes. Um, before he began to play with Cash. When when Cash first went in, I, Cash didn't have a drummer, I don't think, on any of his records when he was still at Sun. When he goes to Columbia Records in 1959, uh, those are done, you know, at the Columbia, Columbia Studio, recording studio there in, in Nashville. And the drummer is usually the Nashville sound legend, Buddy Harmon all those great national sound records. Uh, if you want to guess who the drummer is uh, at that point, it's usually Buddy Harmon, who had a jazz background, but you know, what he's playing on country records tends to be very, very simple. Keeping the beat right. The Ray Price shuffle goes big in 1956 with crazy arms. If you know that record and you know, that's got a drum on it. And so, so, and so then the guitar player in that, in the Tennessee three is Luther Perkins um, who died, as I said, so just a few months after um, at Folsom Prison was recorded. And he had a very, you know, rudimentary guitar style, but absolutely distinctive, right? That's the, that, that's the thing that always matters most is that, are you your own person? If you hear Luther Perkins lick, you go, oh, that's Luther Perkins. And it's not a complicated lick. Guitars can pick it up quickly. Um, he tended to, I think, to he really stuck to the low strings, the bass strings, uh, and um, you know that was his style. He couldn't do it, and I and I like that. I like the fact that you know uh, about the things that Cash sings about are oftentimes the limits that come built into life. You know, everybody hurts, everybody uh, is going to die. People want things out of you you don't want to deliver. Um, you have to pay the rent and on and on. And there's a real sense of limitation. I always feel when I listen to those records, you know, his, his guitars, Perkins's guitar style is so limited. The rhythms in that band are so limited. Cash's voice, he has a very limited range, right? He's, um, and yet I think that those things sort of, you know, underscore the themes of the music and because they bring such energy and distinctiveness to it, um, it comes off that, you know, they're not just um, making do in these limits, they're making joy. They're making, you know, they're making you feel a little more free, even in a world bound by, so, so even in a world so tightly circumscribed, right? After seven years behind these bars together, I'll miss you more than a brother when you go, when you go. If only I had not tried to escape, they'd pardon me with you. I know, yes I know, won't you tell the folks back home I'll soon be coming. And don't let them know I never will be free be free sometimes write and tell me how they're doing and send a picture of mother back to me say hello to dad and shake his poor hard working hand and send a picture of mother if you can 
I think that's something that, that that we don't talk about often is is the fact that you know in a in a time where there really are some phenomenally talented singers, performers, musicians in country music, Johnny Cash isn't that impressive a guitar player. He's not that impressive a singer. Like the artifice, the 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 mythic person he puts on. It is almost solely the reason that we remember him today. Like there are a few, there are a few great songs, but even on this album, he, you know, only, only two songs he plays the entire concert are, are songs that, that are his own writing. Everything else is either written by someone else or a co-write with someone else. It's, it's interesting as we think about Johnny Cash today in, in that context, and I'm sure, you know, you knowing country music the way you do, you can probably think of five or 10 people who didn't get nearly as famous, but are more talented. Well, sure. I mean, you could do it too. You don't have to have a, <laughs> I think you have, you'd only have to have a cursory knowledge of anything to know that there are people who, uh, you know, who, who have more obvious talent than cash, but um, cash has, there are so many things he has going for him, right? So he has charisma. Well, he's he's distinctive, right? He he, he who does he sound like? He sounds like Johnny Cash, yeah. <laughs> and that is such a thing. It's like I've thought about this before. It's like oftentimes we talk about people who are great singers, and a big and obviously you you hone your craft and you learn to use the voice you have the best you can. But a big part of why people are great singers is because they have great voices. And they're, that's a biological gift that they had nothing to do with. It's just they were lucky. <laughs> and so Cash has a voice that sounds like Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. So that's that's great. But then he also did the hard work across decades of, of learning to use that particular voice. Yeah. And in some ways, it's more impressive because his voice is so limited. He made more out of limited gifts than other people have done with much greater uh, more, much more obvious talent and that and that um underscores the charisma part the the way that people are attracted to him there's a part of it is like i could do that i can i can sing along with that i'm not even going to try to sing along with that mariah carey record <laughs> because i know i can't do it yeah but i will i'll sing along with johnny cash which brings you up to his level and him down to you so but the, you're right that the mythic the persona that he's created which is, like I said before, so much like folklore, mm-hmm. um, like the song um, Folsom Prison Blues, which was originally hit in, in, in the 50s. This is kind of an aside for what you were asking me. Um, but he swiped that melody. Um, Cash swiped that melody from a song called Crescent City Blues by Gordon Jenkins in the early 50s. Uh, he was in the military in Germany at the time, Cash was. And a, fr- a buddy of his played him the record. And he asked, play it again. <laughs> and uh, then the next day or a couple of days later, th- I'm, I'm getting all of this from Robert Hilburn's uh, cash biography. Um, and, and Hilburn actually tracked down this guy. And Cash came back a couple of days later with a pencil and paper and like copied down the, the, the lyrics and presumably the chord changes. And it's all, most of the song is Cash has completely changed the lyrics. But that thing about uh, if that train was mine, 
I move it all a little farther down the line. That's Jenkins. I hear the train a coming. It's rolling round the bend. And I ain't been kissed, Lord, since I don't know when. The boys in Crescent City don't seem to know I'm here. That lonesome whistle seems to tell me soon disappear. I mean, that's not like a surprise. I mean, that's so much of like early rock and roll and Cash is kind of oh, sure. adjacent with Richard oh. being its son, you know, like so much of that music is barring this rhythm from this yes. R&B artist, blues artist, country art, Chuck Berry's doing this with Maybelline, right? Everybody is barring Bob Dylan, sure. his record sure. yeah. all from other folk songs. Yes. And I think, if I'm remembering it correctly, the, uh, nothing came of this um, borrowing in the 50s when it was originally a hit for Cash. But when it was a hit a second time, Jenkins sued him uh, really? and actually won. Um, no, not, I mean, it's still a Cash song. He changed it significantly. He made it the Johnny Cash song. If you listen to Crescent City Blues, you you go, oh, that's the Folsom Prison Blues uh, melody. But, you know, it's a completely different feel and vibe and... But the thing I was going to say about Folsom Prison, too, is that one of the things that sort of reinforces this idea of him as a persona and a folkloric character or a folkloric or a teller of folk tales is the way the song is so uh, geographically challenged. Mm-hmm. For years, I thought that Folsom Prison was in Texas because he says the train is going to San Antonio. Because he's looking out the window, he sees a train that's going to San Antonio. Folsom must be somewhere in Texas, but it's in California. Yeah. But why is he in prison in California if he shot a man in Reno? This doesn't make sense. <laughs> but I, but I don't think that's a problem in the context of the song because again, it's we're not. You don't listen to Cash for realism. You listen for romanticism and for the tall tales. Mm. And this this makes it bigger, not not something you would nitpick. It makes it even bigger. And it reminds me of the way of like in 25 minutes to go, the Shel Silverstein song that he does on uh, at Folsom prison, you know, those things couldn't possibly have happened in 25 minutes, right? It's, it's supposed to be an exaggeration of life. The same thing with, uh, I got stripes, you know, he commits the crime. He's arrested. He's tried. He's imprisoned like in three days. <laughs> this is not the way our justice system works. No. Um, and so it, all of those things that they come off not as real, but as, you know, something adjacent to life that makes them entertaining and intriguing. Cash has a cartoonish kind of place he can go to. Um, that even as you're taking him dead seriously, you can you you know it's not real, right? Because of, of these kinds of things that I'm talking about. Whereas if you listen to Haggard, you you know he can scare the bejesus out of you because you don't have that. He's a realist. He's <laughs> he's not going to exaggerate. He's going to try to tell it as close as he can to the way that it happened. Well, they're building a gallows outside my cell. And I've got 25 minutes to go And the whole town's waiting just to hear me yell I got 24 minutes to go 
Well, they gave me some beans for my last meal But 23 minutes ago But nobody asked me how I feel I got 22 minutes to go Well, I sent for the governor and the whole darn bunch With 21 minutes to go And I called up the mayor, but he's out to lunch I got 20 more minutes to go Then the sheriff said, boy, I'm gonna watch you die With 19 minutes to go So I laughed in his face and I spit in his eye With 18 minutes to go Before we get into the question about sharing our five tracks from, from the album, I, I do want to ask this question because you have written so beautifully in your recent book about Merle Haggard. I, I want to ask you to, for the sake of our listeners, give us a little picture of that relationship between Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard. And especially given really the, the years. So 64 is Johnny Cash's last hit. And here he is recording in Folsom Prison. And of course, what has happened in the intervening five years is the darkest days of his drug addiction. And Merle's there in all of that. So will you, will you share a little bit just about that relationship between Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard? Yeah, well, Haggard has, had said, said many times that when he went into prison, uh, you know, he was a Lefty Frizzell fan. He was a Bob Wills fan didn't really think much cash and that makes sense because uh frizzell is like a singer singer that man can sing right he can he he's like a country version of mariah carey i mean he can bend notes and stretch notes and he he's a singer singer and he was a bob wills fan haggard was and that makes sense too because wills was a great great musician and hired great musicians and demand a great musicianship if you're going to be a Texas playboy. And Cash, you know, we've talked about the limitations of his gifts. And so it makes sense that Merle might not have been so impressed. But when he saw him at, at San Quentin, he, you know, he wrote that, okay, that, that turned me around and it made me think, okay, I, maybe I could do that when I get out of here. So when they first met, um, Cash offered him, um, you know, a, a Benzedrine, right? <laughs> so this was the first time they met. Years later, uh, Cash um, was on, he was one, he was a guest on the Johnny Cash show. And they're sitting around, you know, um, talking. And Haggard says, someday I'm going to tell you where I saw you the first time. And Cash says, I know where you saw you. You saw me the first time. It was at San Quentin. And he meant it, according to the legend, Cash meant it as a joke. He was just kidding around. But he saw Haggard blush, like, really badly. And he realized, oh, that's true. Cash uh, encouraged Haggard to come out, you know, uh, about his prison years, which early on in his career were secret. Uh, and so he kind of, you know, started to write songs about Haggard did about his prison life, like "See Me Back Home" and "Mama Tried" and those kinds of songs, which um, became even more. Again, 
building into the authenticity of Haggard is like, oh, well, he really knew those things because he was actually in prison. Cash was not in prison. But then, uh, so when, when they were getting ready to do the Johnny Cash show appearance by Haggard, uh, they, they wrote into the script a little bit where they could replay this. And um, and Haggard says, Johnny, you know, I uh, first, uh, I remember uh, seeing you play San Quentin. And Johnny says, I don't remember you being on that show, Merle. And he says, I wasn't on the show. I was in the audience. Apparently, I, I've not seen it, but that's on film somewhere. But it was cut from the actual aired episode. Mm. Cash and uh, Haggard, they'll remain lifelong friends. Uh, Cat or Haggard turned to Cash frequently, as I think a lot of people of Haggard's generation, dead country stars, they turned to Cash for advice. They saw him... Um, and this is where the, the myth and the man intersect. You know, they, they, they saw him as someone who had been around the world, who'd learned some things, who had had a gravitas and a wisdom that they could benefit from. Um, when, when Haggard wrote a song uh, called Irma Jackson about an interracial love affair, um, which he worried would be controversial, he called Cash up and said, what do you think of this song? And Cash said, I think it's going to be a hit. You should release it. Capitol Records, Merle's label, did not let him release it. But I think Cash was right. I think that record would have been a huge, huge record coming on the heels of Okie from Muskogee and turning the tables on Hagger's Okie from Muskogee. Um, and then they just, they stayed uh, good, good friends. Cash threatened, or Haggard threatened to leave Columbia when they let Cash go in the late 80s. Uh, he didn't quite leave just then, but he threw a fit. Uh, a notorious fit that shows up in book after book of how angry he was that they had cut Johnny Cash. Um, in the in the American recording years, they even recorded um, some songs together. Uh, one of the outtakes in the American Two record, Cash is recording with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, or most of the band, and uh, they do a version of Merle's song, "The Running Kind," um, that was eventually released on one of the outtakes collections that's really, really good. I was born the running kind With leaving always on my mind Home was never home to me at any time Every front door found me hoping I would find the back door open There just had to be an exit For the running kind Within me there's a prison Surrounding me alone As real as any dungeon With its walls of stone I know running's not answer though running's been my nature and the thing in me that keeps me moving on I was born the running kind with leaving always on my mind home was never home to me at any time Every front door found me hoping I would find the back door open 
There just had to be an exit for the running kind. One of the things we like to do with every guest we bring on, if we're talking about an album, we want to give everyone an opportunity to share their five favorite songs from the album. And these generally, they don't have to be in order. We generally just do them in the order of how they appear on the album. And uh, as as you're our guest, we're going to save you for last. So, Micaiah, why don't you start us off with your five? All right. Uh, I can't imagine our list being very different. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, so number one, false in prison blues, um, just really great. You know it. You know it's based for stuff, but it's also very rock and roll, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which that's my in for country anyway. Is the more of the you know when the birds and Dylan go country. So it just it works for me. I love the song. I still miss someone, but I wouldn't put this version on my top five, even on this album. Yeah, I agree with, I agree with that. The studio version of I still miss someone is the the record and the song. One of those perfect recordings. Yes. Yes. Amen. Um, So I'm going to go for uh, cocaine blues. Great song. uh, Because this performance of it is just really fantastic. Uh, Likewise, 25 minutes to go. Those two appearing to, you know, uh, side by side, you know, just makes I think this record like what it is. Even though he's really doubling down, as we were talking earlier, like on like prison songs, uh, I think the gallows humor um, lets the air out of it a little bit and works really nicely. I, I'm still gonna say Orange Blossom Special because I do really like uh, this version of it, even though the studio version still might be better. Um, this isn't my number five, but I do want to say this will be the second album on our list to have the song uh, The Long Black Veil because it's also on music from Big Pink. That's and true. That might be the best existing version of the song because uh, Rick Danko's voice is just uh, just amazing. Uh, five, I've made this list so many times in my head, um, but I'm going to get June in the mix and I'm going to say Jackson because... Uh, her intro is great and mm-hmm. that version of it is good even though might not be the best version of it but today I'm going to say those are my five we got married in a fever Jackson, you turn 
sucker, I lose my coat. I'm going to Jackson. We have just two in common. Oh. Um, I, and in the one, I think all three of us will have the opener, Folsom, pretty Folsom prison blues. Um, I think the combination of this song in this location at this point in his career, what it means that it becomes this big hit. I, I think there's, there's too much. And, and also it's just a phenomenal song, but, but I think there's too much going for it to not include Folsom, Folsom prison blues. Mm-hmm. So that's my number one. My number two is Dark as the Dungeon. Um, I I really like um, how slow and low his voice is in this song. I, I, and especially, you know, using the idea of a coal mine as the confinement, the, the prison cells and the confinement. I, I, I love, you know, essentially it becomes a prison song, not about prison. Um, so yeah. I, I really love love it for that. Um, my, my number three is 25 minutes to go again, the, the shell Silverstein, you know, it's funny leaning into the gallows humor. I think of the way, um, again, Johnny cash demonstrates in his performance of this song that he really is just a gifted entertainer. This is like you said, David, this is a shtick that he clearly has down. He knows how to do these performances. He knows how to do these shows in jail. He's got these kind of bits all together that he's doing. And I think 25 minutes to go just leans into that. Uh, my song number four to get June in the mix is actually give my love to Rose, which I think, especially in the context of performing at a prison, um, you know, you take the, the already this sweet song and it, it, there's a whole extra dimension that's added to it um, in this performance. And then for number five, I'm going to do Greystone Chapel. I, I think just the way that, Johnny Cash, you know, again, so leans so hard in this album into the the prison songs, into the the kind of outlaw persona, and then still to you know, hey, I'm still going to end the show with this gospel song. Um, I, I I think is so telling of who he really is, kind of that that seeing through to the person behind the artifice, and so I love that we get Greystone Chapel as the closer. David, do you have that one on your list? Because if not, then we should probably talk about Glenn Shirley here. Uh, I didn't have it on my list, but you're exactly right. That was for years uh, before I knew uh, the story behind Greystone Chapel. And early in the album, at one point, Cash says, how you doing, Shirley? Mm-hmm. And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> Who's Shirley? Don't call me Shirley. Um Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Glenn Shirley as I mean, Glenn Shirley, I mean, he he wrote this song. He he was, you know, uh, an inmate at Folsom Prison and wrote this song. And um, it just makes it kind of another special moment that can happen, like kind of only on a live album. You know, I think that's kind of one of the unique things kind of going for it is you have an inmate who wrote this song and Cash is there and he's going to perform it on his record for Columbia, it's a big deal, you know? And I think that that, that intersection, uh, intersection between like the myth and the man really coming together, really at the end there, where there's the gospel side, he's in the prison, he's writing a song and performing it. And it was written by someone who is an inmate, who's going to come out and have his own career. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. probably something that cash allowed him to have by 
performing this song as the closing track on this record, you know, so it's, you know, a, a unique and interesting thing that I think really says a lot about who Cash was as a performer and someone who was, you know, supportive of other, you know, artists. Inside the walls of prison, my body may be, but my Lord has set my soul free. There's a gray stone chapel here at Folsom, a house of worship in this den of sin. You wouldn't think that God had a place here at Folsom. He saved the soul of many lost men Now this gray stone chapel here at Folsom Stands a hundred years old made of granite rock It takes a ring of keys to move here at Folsom But the door to the house of God is never locked Inside the walls of prison, my body may be, but the Lord has set my soul free. So my five, I'll just go, I think you've all, you've mentioned all of them together. Uh, Obviously, Folsom Prison, uh, I agree with Dark as a Dungeon. That's uh, absolutely fantastic. His vocal on that is excellent. Um, he had actually, Cash had actually released that as a single back in 1964, hmm. studio version uh, uh, that I think it wasn't successful. It only got to uh, number 49 for a week on the country charts. Is that the I, moment to, on the record, where he's, he says, don't laugh for recording this, don't you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that that that's another one. Is like, well, that's something you only get on the live version. You know, that makes it just like that much. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, all hail! All, I still miss someone, but I agree with Micaiah that this particular version is not that inspired. Cocaine Blues is is inspired. <laughs> that really is just a completely um, complete commitment to that uh, performance. Twenty five minutes to go. Uh, which was a, a song that uh, he had also recorded previously. It was on the Ballads of True West in 1965. Hmm. And then my final one, yeah, I'm going to go with Give My Love to Rose, which is just such a, um, you know, just an absolutely um, magnificent, magnificent song. I found him by the railroad track this morning. I could see that he was nearly dead I knelt down beside him and I listened Just to hear the words the dying fella said He said they let me out of prison out in Frisco For ten long years I paid for what I'd done I was trying to get back to Louisiana To see my rose and get to know my son 
Give my love to Rose, please watch you, mister. Take her all my money, tell her buy some pretty clothes. Tell my boy that daddy's so proud of him. And don't forget to give my love to Rose. You know, the nature of our podcast, David, is that essentially we're trying to put together a list of the greatest albums of all time using the limitation that we can only have one album per artist. So the question for us is what makes this Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison? What makes this the quintessential Johnny Cash record. Is this, if you're only going to put one Johnny Cash album on, is this the one to put on? I wouldn't put it on. Really? I really, sorry to have wasted your time. (laughs) Well, well, tell us, tell us what what you would have picked. Well, just in terms of being like the best Johnny Cash album um, or the greatest Johnny Cash album, it's certainly, uh, it's, it's a great album and it would, it should be, uh, you know, your caveat of one entry aside, uh, it's great. It it belongs on the list of the greatest albums of all time. There are a number of Cash albums that I think I just would rather listen to. <laughs> um, they include greater, I think, greater performances. I think, um, I you know, I, I tend to like studio performances over live performances um, with, with exceptions as needed. Okay, so uh, I'm going to count it down <laughs> from five to one. Uh, the fifth one is uh, some people who maybe came to Cash through his American Recordings album in 1994, the first one, where it's just him sitting at Rick Rubin's house playing a guitar on the couch, right? That record. Um, if you like that record, which is an excellent album, it's not in my top five, but if you like that record and want more stuff in that style, then I would really encourage you to track down um, – a posthumous collection that Columbia put out in 2006 called personal file in the, it's a two disc collection. Uh, it's mostly recorded like in 1972, 73, 74, and it's cash just sitting in his home studio, just with a guitar saying a few words about why he likes the song or why he remembers it or why it means anything to him. And then he just sings it. These performances have those same just guitar and voice, but I think that the material he's picking, uh, which to non-country ears might seem corny or sentimental um, sometimes, does a much better job of encompassing all the different parts of the Cash persona. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four is at Folsom Prison Blues, um, or at Folsom Prison, rather. Um, obviously, we've said it's a fantastic electric dynamite career changing and country music changing uh it there are so many live prison albums that country artists have put out since mm-hmm. um but that was my number four number three is my favorite of the american albums and that's unchained american two that he records with tom petty and the heartbreakers um that is again i think that record does a really excellent job of sort of hitting all the, the cash bases while still maintaining this kind of gravitas and it rocks. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks to that. That's band. a really great heartbreakers album. Yes, yes, yes. Mike Campbell are full form. Yes. Yes. Amen. 
Um, number two is uh, you got to get something on here from his son years. And so I would go with his hot and blue guitar, which was his very first album. And it includes, I walked the line and Folsom prison and uh, a number of other of his earliest uh, charting hits, as well as some, um, some other stuff records that, uh, that he released back then that most listeners would know. It's that classic sun records, Tennessee two sound, it's just it's just fantastic. All, uh, I will, you know, just add that all the stuff that's on his hot and blue guitar uh, is going to be on any good Sun collection, and there are a kajillion. <laughs> so you don't necessarily need to get that, or you could get it and then program it yourself. But um, or get one of the collections and then program his hot and blue guitar yourself. But that's that's the one that I would go to second, and then the one that I think is his greatest album, uh, which is saying something, his best album is as good as anybody's country album ever made, uh, which is to say as good as any album ever made. And that's the fabulous Johnny Cash, which was his first album for Columbia after he left Sun. Uh, One of the reasons reportedly always, uh, what he always said was why he wanted to leave Sun in part was that he wanted to record religious material. He wanted to record gospel stuff. His second Columbia album is an entire um, gospel album. Uh, I have uh, it. It's hymns by Johnny Cash. I have a copy of it framed here on my wall in my office. And I'm an atheist, so I'm <laughs> I'm not I'm not swayed just by the fact that it's a gospel record. But one of the standout tracks on the fabulous Johnny Cash is um, um, "That's Enough," which is uh, his version of the old Dorothy Love Coates uh, gospel standard. Uh, absolutely amazing version of that in the in the Tennessee three style. Uh, really great. Don't take your guns to town is on fabulous Johnny Cash. Um, it's just and a great version of I still miss someone. Yes, amen. Yeah. So so those are the those are the five that I came up with. From the back door of your life, you swept me out, dear. In the breadline of your dreams, I lost my place. At the table of your love, I got to brush off. At the Indianapolis of your heart, I lost the race. I've been washed down the sink of your conscience. In the theater of your love, I lost my part. And now you say you've got me out of your conscience. I've been flushed from the bathroom of your heart. In the garbage disposal of your dreams, I've been ground up, dear, on the river of your plans, I'm up the creek, up the elevator of your future, I've been shafted. Well, David, we want to thank you for being with us for our listeners. Um, if, If you're like us and you are maybe ready for some country music homework to discover that, hey, 
maybe you're one of those rockest people that we were talking about earlier and it's time for you to go back and discover maybe there's some country music you love. Um, here's a great place to start. Of course, David is the author of The Running Kind, listening to Merle Haggard, but he is also the co-author of a book, Heartaches by the Numbers, 500 country music hits. So if you're looking for a good place to read more from David and also get some country music homework, that might be a good place to start. Uh, David, we thank you so much for being with us. How can our listeners stay up to date with what you are working on? Where can they follow you on social media? Oh, well, I'm easy to find on Twitter at DL Cantwell. And um, I'm writing, trying to work on other books. Wonderful. Well, David, uh, thanks so much for being with us. This has been a real treat, and we appreciate the time. And uh, I, I don't know about you, Micaiah, but I'm I'm excited to go do a deep dive in country music now. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Micaiah. Hey, look yonder coming, coming down that railroad track. Hey, look yonder coming. Coming down that railroad track It's that orange blossom special Bringing my baby back David pushed back a little bit on at Folsom prison being the number one definitive cash album. So Rob, did that sway you? Did that make you think like, Oh, maybe we need to recontextualize cash. Maybe we shouldn't just pitch and hold him here. Maybe we should look elsewhere for a cash album. Or are you still thinking, you know, after the conversation, no, we got it right. This is, this is the one. Where, where yeah. are you? No, I, I, I wasn't wavered at all. I wasn't, I wasn't surprised that Folsom prison wasn't his number one. Um, and I think he, he made his kind of point for that pretty early on talking about how he really appreciates the studio versions of songs more. And so you really have to love a live album to, to make this your like definitive Johnny cash album. And so I, I think for me, I just love a good live album. So, you know, as, as you and I were talking about in the intro, like for me, Live at Folsom Prison is my favorite Johnny Cash album. Live at San Quentin is my second favorite. So like these two back-to-back live prison albums are my favorite version of Johnny Cash. And I love, I love the, I love the energy of him playing these songs live to this audience. I mean, San Quinn doesn't make my top five cash album, but you know, it's a, of course it's a very fun listen. Um, starts with a song written by Bob Dylan for crying out loud. Come on. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm there too. I, there's some, there's this, this record is very special and I think it is one of the great live albums because it does. And I think, I think it is that audience. It's a lot of what we talked about, you know, James Brown at the Apollo. It's, that time it's that audience it's that venue and that setting right that kind of is what makes it a great live album i've listened to plenty of live albums from artists and you're just like 
Okay, that was a live recording of that band. Yep. But, you know, there's really nothing special about it. Um, there's something very special, e- even if the cheers are dubbed, right? I mean, that's documentary films edit things, right? So they can tell the story they want to tell. And, you know, so those cheers are there. Those cheers are for a cash. They just put them somewhere else, right, for this added effect. You know, and I, that's some documentarians and stuff would you know really look down on that and some would say that's the business you know so you know maybe maybe people feel kind of icky about that um but however you feel about it it makes for a great record it may not be like wholly accurate or you know matter of fact but there's a truth to it still Mm -hmm. you know And, and for someone who is a mythic character right taking the truth and manipulating it to demonstrate some other truth that's still true, but not, you know, so empirically. So right. Points to him as an artist and someone who's going to take all the stuff that you have and make an artistic decision with it rather than the facts as, you know, present them as like, here are the facts about it, you know, uh, to present it, this record as a bunch of quiet inmates, clapping at the end of each song i think it it loses its power and not to have the announcements going off in between songs or as you turn over the record you know so i i think all of that stuff it had actually took great effect yeah um and i and i prefer that on a record i'd probably be a little bit um, more uptight about it if it were in a documentary film especially depending on the subject um but i'm not moved either um and this is, I think, a great country record for people who don't particularly like country music. I think Cash is a great art country artist for people who aren't necessarily into country music also. Um, you know, so I think that it makes total sense that this would be the record and this would kind of be the more purely country artist, right, to make our list. Yeah, so let's ask a question. Does it belong on our list? I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I, mean, I really... I, I don't even know I don't know how how high it would place. Um but yeah, I, I, I mean I think cash deserves to be here and I believe this is the cash record to be here. Um and I think I mean because I think this is one of the great live albums. I think this is one of the great country albums, and I think Cash is one of the great artists of all time. So for me it is a no brainer. Yeah. Uh, even though there are times where cash is maybe more impressive in his career mm-hmm. um the i mean just like the side a of this record is all the proof you need yeah. for why this needs to be on here for an album that is more than the sum of its parts i think it has to be this album but listener what about you is this the right Johnny Cash album? Does Johnny Cash deserve to be in our top 100? Let us know what you think. Of course, you can reach out to us on Twitter at You Forgot One Pod, on Instagram at You Forgot One. And Micaiah, no matter where someone is listening to this podcast, what should they do? Well, of course, you should give us a five-star review if you feel so inclined. And even better, you could write a review. Um, that helps people find the show, and that helps us um, tremendously. Um, you should also, if you want to get these episodes as they're coming out, the best thing you could do is like, follow, or subscribe, whichever your podcast provider tells you to do, um, so that every time we drop new episodes, they're right there ready for you on your device. 
Well, listener, we're going to leave you now with the penultimate song from this album, Curly Putman's Green Green Grass of Home. We'll see you next week. The old hometown looks the same As I step down from the train And there to meet me is my mama and my papa Down the road I look and there runs Mary Hair of golden lips like cherries It's good to touch the green, green grass of home The old house is still standing Though the paint is cracked and dry And there's that old oak tree That I used to play on Down the lane I walk With my sweet Mary Hair of golden lips like cherries It's good to touch The green, green grass of home Yes, they'll all come to see me Arms reaching, smiling sweetly It's good to touch the green, green grass of home Then I'll awake and look around me To the cold gray walls that surround me And then I realize I was only dreaming For there's a guard and a saddle padre Again, I touch the green, green grass of home. Yes, they'll all come to see me in the shade of the old oak tree as they lay me neath the green, green grass of home.